Welcome to Mortgage Space. I'm your host, Alan Medeiros, and today we have the distinct pleasure again to spend some time with Anselmo Moreno from Innovative Credit Solutions. How are you today? Fantastic. How are you? Excellent. Well, I thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule. You know, helping as many clients as you do, I really appreciate it. And today I want to talk about some important topics that I think that the listeners will gain some value. If not them personally, they can pass this information on to somebody that may need it. And I want to talk about something known as credit catastrophes. You know, I have had this conversation probably more than one time, only because during the fallout of the mortgage industry and the real estate crisis in 2008 to about 2013, we saw a lot of people lose their home through foreclosure. Uh, They were forced to file for bankruptcy, or maybe they did a short sale. And a lot of uh, people kind of go to the internet to get data on how to reestablish. But I want to give some hard timelines that are actually guidelines that people can follow, but also provide them with an opportunity to figure out how to rebuild their credit. So in the past, you and I have talked about the fact that the credit catastrophes are typically defined as a single event that's created in a sudden and catastrophic change to their credit. Now, what does that mean to you when you look at a credit report? There comes a time in our lives where, where something happens, right? And, and we coined that term credit catastrophe, but really what it is, it's a point in time where you have no choice but to focus on food on the table, gas in the gas tank, and your credit becomes second or third place, right? You don't worry about keeping the car loan up or you don't worry about your credit card bills anymore because you don't have enough money to pay those. You, you, you got to eat. You got to have a place to live. You got to have gas in the gas tank to get to work. And so when you're forced in that financial hardship to have to default on your on your credit for whatever reason, right, the catastrophe could be a job loss, maybe a layoff, um, a divorce actually often leads to this, these types of situations. Um, some some type of illness, maybe an accident where you're rendered unable to work, your income significantly reduces any of these types of situations that will put you in a financial hardship where your credit becomes second or third place will likely lead into a very poor credit score for the foreseeable future. In your experience in some way, have you seen these be isolated events, meaning you can see good credit history prior to this event, and then all of a sudden this string of late payments or a loss of uh, property and then having to start over again? Some people have bad luck where it happens uh, often, but for the most part, well, I've seen it all, first of all. But definitely a credit catastrophe will be defined as a, a one point in time, right, where you, you did lose your job, but maybe you had an, an extended unemployment situation where it lasted for a few months, several months. Um, and sometimes it could be very, very isolated. Uh, it, it also depends on the illness. If you do get sick and you're sick for several years, it could be an extended credit damage that gets placed on the report as well. Um, so that's very dependent. But for the, I think that the point that we're trying to make is that these are situations that are beyond the consumer's control as opposed to just willful negligence and not paying your bill or being irresponsible with your debts. So I'll go back to that point you just made, willful negligence of your debts. There was a term that was used called strategic default. Do you remember that? Yeah. What was that? So strategic default was when people stopped paying the mortgage on purpose in order to force the, the bank to... Uh, negotiate the terms of the mortgage, the mortgage modification or loan modifications. Um, they also use it in the credit card industry to stop paying your credit cards to then hopefully get a good settlement down the line. So it's basically you defaulted on purpose to get a better outcome. Yeah. And that happens more often than you think. And, and it's it, a really bad idea. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. But it happens. And I see it on the credit reports. And 
I think when a consumer, let me just start from the beginning of the way that the bank views your credit. You are number one, asking a lending institution to lend you hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think in today's consumer mindset of this commodity-driven thought that loans are just there for the taking, that they forget that the bank is actually the one with the money. (laughs) There was a time where you actually did go to the bank physically. You put on the best clothes you had. You created the best probability of you getting a yes answer for you applying for money. Whereas today, there's so many choices out there that they kind of forget as a consumer that you're asking them for money and they do not need to give it to you. So with that said, the credit profile does tell a lot to the bank, but the loan officer fills in the rest of the picture. So we provide letters of explanation to explain the hardship that may have existed, or maybe this was an isolated event. Perhaps this was something that was not necessarily planned on, but a sudden loss of job like you talked about, an illness, a divorce. That, that is a big one. Um, but medical debt typically is the thing that we see that is the mounting debt that continues to go, and it's, it's centered around a major loss. But the strategic default, those then in themselves created kind of a different segment of market for what the creditor or the, the credit lender looked at as being a choice, not something that was hardship driven. So I'll give you a quick example. Say in 2006, somebody purchased a property at the height of the market. The value of that property dropped 30% in 2009. They owed more than the house was worth. Rather than negotiating a short sale to give the bank less than the total amount owed, they would stop making payments entirely and allow the property to go into foreclosure. And at that point, they themselves were taken off the hook because in California, there were some waivers, if you will, for any losses taken on by the bank. Well, there's protections against deficiency balances for consumers. Yes. And because of that, the bank was left holding the bag and the upside down asset and the consumer could walk away. And then for a little while, there, there was also tax protections against any de- deficiency balances Correct. as well. Now, we're pretty far past that now, considering in 2018, we've seen a lot of this all go away. But it is still happening where people do have to file for bankruptcy. And there may be a situation where they have a financial hardship and they're not able to work out some type of uh, modification agreement or some type of financial remedy for their hardship on their existing mortgage. So they may go into um, a pre-foreclosure status, right? And then try to get some type of assistance. And if they're not able to work all those details out with the lender, then they wind up in foreclosure. So it still does happen, albeit a lot less because the credit guidelines have gotten so much more strict. But I wanna go through some uh, details on what are some timelines for specific events. And I'm gonna break it down based off of the type of credit catastrophe, the type of loan, and the wait periods based off of those loans. So let's start with the most obvious one, it's bankruptcy. Now bankruptcy has two basic types for personal um, filings. One would be chapter seven. Chapter seven is a 
liquidation of all non-secured debts. And in those situations, let's just say they had $30,000 worth of credit cards, they would then do a notice to creditors. The creditors would either respond or not respond. And if they did not respond or did not challenge it, then they would be included in discharge debts. It's a one-time event. And after that process, they receive a discharge. That discharge starts the time frame for the wait period of two years for FHA to be able to reestablish to purchase a property. For VA, that is two years as well. For USDA, it's three years. And for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, it's four years. Now, the second type of bankruptcy is a reorganization of debt, and that would be a Chapter 13. This is where you take all of the creditors that are in this pool of money that's owed. The trustee would put together a plan in order to repay those debts back. And in trade for getting money back, these creditors agree to stop any collection activity, stop any interest that's accruing, and allow that to be fully amortized and paid off within the time frame of that particular uh, plan. So for most cases, people include secured debts, autos, credit cards, and other types of liabilities that are manageable within a three or five year period. So that trustee is going to be accepting payments on a monthly basis. And during that process, they're recording every payment that's received. And for that benefit of Chapter 13, where you're actually still paying back those debts, but in a, in a very fixed manner over time, whether it be three years or five years, you're allowed after entering a Chapter 13 payment with 12 months history, you can obtain an FHA loan with trustee approval. If you go to a veteran's loan, it's still one year or 12 months. USDA, however, wants three full years. Did and then, go ahead. Is there still a credit score requirement that you have to there meet? There is. So your minimums are generally going to be the same. So 620 for FHA, VA is going to be 620. USDA is actually 640 for the most part. Fannie and Freddie allow 620, but it's really dependent upon the history. Now, here's the problem, and we'll get into this because I can see, Ari, where you're going down this road. Um, when you are looking at credit in a Chapter 13, it doesn't necessarily mean that the credit score will maintain itself because these balances are not reporting the same. And it actually has a, a notation in the credit report that says bankruptcy Chapter 13 or bankruptcy Chapter 7. Yeah, you pretty much will not have a high enough credit score to buy a home after a year in a Chapter 13 bankruptcy. That's like not going to happen. But it says it's allowed. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to happen, though. Well, to finish out this section, and I and I agree with you there, um, for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, if it's two years from the date of the actual filing and you do have that payment history for 24 months, they would allow you then to try to enter into a purchase with those types of terms. Now, you just made mention that you won't have that score. G give the listeners a reason why you may not be able to obtain that kind of a score. The the So a Chapter 7 and a Chapter 13 are very big difference in, in credit scoring. So a Chapter 7, well, they both will stay on there for 10 years, mm -hmm. okay, um, from the date of the discharge. But a Chapter 7 is over in four months. So, so you file Chapter 7, four months later you're done, and you're able to start rebuilding credit. So technically, 12 months after that, you're 16 months in, but you've already had 12 months of reestablishing your payment history. 
But when you go on to chapter 13, that's typically a three to five year plan. And for that, that amount in time, they're not reporting um, any of your payments to the credit bureau. So any debt that you included in the bank is like, or included in the bankruptcy is frozen. So they're not reporting any updated statuses for several reasons, but mainly your payment that you give to the trustee is disbursed, um, you know, considering and following the plan that was established. But most of the time, that plan is set up to to pay off the secured assets first or the secured creditors first. And a lot of the unsecured creditors don't get paid anything. Correct. So they're not reporting anything, which is it's, it's not it's good because you're not getting any late payments on the credit report. But it's also bad because you're not getting any on time payments on the credit score. So your, your credit score is just going to stay like frozen for a little while as long as you're in that plan. As you establish new credit, you will then be able to reestablish a new score but it is highly unlikely for you to obtain credit with the filing of a fresh chapter 13 bankruptcy. So that's a really complicated one. You would have to be very deliberate about it. Like like file bankruptcy and before everybody knows about it, you open up new credit and keep it out of the bankruptcy. Like you would have to be that deliberate in order for it to be a year a year from now to have a good score. That kind of sounds sneaky. I've never heard that before, Anselmo. Well, I just I just was trying to make up a way in my head right now of how this would actually work, and that's the only thing I can think of. I will give you a counter to that. I have seen credit with a Chapter 13 with positive trade history, and it has to do with something that was not included in the plan. There was secured debt that was held outside the plan but was paid directly. But the trustee is still considering total obligations mm -hmm. when that happens, but it was only one open active, and it's yeah. typically the house if it's not included. And most of the time, that the, the house is the reason why a Chapter 13 is filed. You know, I would say in all of my years of experience, the, the Chapter 13s make the most sense when you want to save the house. Correct. So most of the time, it, you know, it's, it, we're, you know, we're, it, we've seen everything in the last 12 years, but the, the Chapter 13 is definitely just a, a really tough one to get through. Um, so, but I'm, I've never seen that. So uh, that's interesting that you saw that. The reason why you didn't see is because they didn't need your assistance at the time, <laughs> but it does happen. Let's move on and, and shift gears now to the foreclosure and then short sale. And we'll start with the foreclosure because the foreclosure is measured by the time that the bank actually transfers that property into a new buyer's name. That's called the trustee sale. Once that happens, that starts your wait period. And that foreclosure process could take a while. Typically, it's between six months to two years. Okay, So during that time frame, if you manage all of your other credit and kept all of those credit liabilities current, there's a strong chance that you will still have a positive score, albeit it's going to be weighted down by the negative reporting of that, that mortgage trade line. But it is something that can still be maintained. Once a foreclosure goes through, there's a notation that says foreclosure on the credit report. And then we as a lender need to obtain the trustee deed in order to show that that is transferred out of the borrower's name. Once that happens, we start our three-year wait period for FHA loans measured by that date. And then two years for VA loans, three years for USDA loans, and seven years for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which is a long time to wait. But... It is somewhat of a slap on the wrist for not managing your obligations. And the bank is going to be a bit more hesitant to lend to somebody that has basically let a house go into foreclosure or has lost a home through foreclosure. And now you're asking them to take that risk on again. 
absolutely. Um, and I think the foreclosures, they, they're, so a foreclosure would, would be considered equivalent to like a repossession on a credit report, but there's a special code for foreclosures. But what really damages the score is the late payments that lead up to the foreclosure. Correct. And a lot of people don't take that into account. Um, so the longer that you go trying to make the payments, but you have a, like a, say a rolling late that keeps going, or you go 30, 60, 90, 120, 150, all those significantly hurt the score. And then you kind of cap it off with a foreclosure. Um, it, it just, it, you're gonna lose relative to where you're at, but you can lose 150 to 200 points for a foreclosure, but it's mainly because you lead up to it with a bunch of late payments. And you, you kind of have to, like you don't go into foreclosure and never miss a payment, sure. right? So that those two go hand in hand. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I have seen that. That is the damaging effect, is this, this string of 12, 14 months of just consistent rolling 30, 60, 90 day lates and that has a very big impact on the scoring of that particular borrower. So let's go into the last portion called short sale. Now the definition of a short sale can be best understood by stating if you owe more than what you're paying off, then the creditor is being shorted the amount. So as an example, if I owed you $100,000, but I'm only able to sell the asset, this case the house, for $70,000. I'm only gonna be able to pay you 70,000. So you have a deficiency amount of $30,000. So that is a short portion of the loan. Now, people say, well, I heard short sales take a long time. The answer is absolutely they take a long time. And the reason why is because you're gonna go to the creditor and you're going to speak with them and say, pretty please, will you accept less than what I owe you? They're not beholden to the whole debt by themselves. They have shareholders, they have people in a pool of money, and they need to meet with them or at least send out a vote to say, will we accept less than the total amount due? And in those situations, in real estate specifically, the creditor uh, that is owed the money will order specific reports to validate that the offer is in line with current market value. So let's just say they order what they call a BPO or broker's price opinion. They may go out there and evaluate this asset at 85,000, but your offer was 70. They can come back to you and say, we will not accept 70,000, but we will accept 85 because that that's what we deemed it to be valued at. And then the buyer who's making that offer would have a decision to either counter again or cancel because they were not happy with the terms. But at those points, it becomes an approved short sale. And if somebody comes to the table and is willing to make an offer at 85,000, following these terms, it's already approved, go ahead and close. So that is what happens in the short sale. And I think that most people don't understand why it's called short. There's nothing short about the process. It's that you're shorting <laughs> the lender the the deficiency for the amount of uh, cost that you know they're they're getting net net at the end and sometimes and especially back in the day it would get extra complicated because there were more than one lenders involved correct so you would have to involve negotiations with multiple yeah. uh, lien holders that had a stake in the property and that obviously extends the time because you got to get three companies or two yes. companies to agree to accept less than the full balance so in that case let's just say that uh, there were two creditors. If there's no value there, they will pretty much tell the second creditor to pound sand. They're just not gonna get anything. And they let them know that pretty clearly. And they're in a junior position. But we have seen some local companies 
detach themselves from the property. Then it gets sold at a short sale. And then what do they do? They go after the consumer for it. Absolutely. And that is a crazy thing that you probably see post-closing on that real estate that the seller of that property, the one that lived in the house, thought was done. There's a, So that could be a whole episode in itself. Absolutely. How the legislation has changed creditors' ability to go after deficiency balances. There's been a lot of changes, but here we are, 2018. Um, we, don't, we don't see that very much now, but just to kind of keep it brief, um, if it's if it was purchase money, so if it was just a straight up 80 20 loan, um, they will not that will not happen. But if it was a HELOC that was obtained after um, you bought the house, after you bought the house, that is very likely to happen. Um, so that's kind of where we would draw the line in the sand, and that's the first question that we would ask. Sure. But it definitely did happen before, and there was a lot of confusion as to when it was legal, when it was not legal. Um, but we learned after trial and error over several years what exactly to look for. Absolutely. So I didn't give the time frame. So on a short sale, and that's measured by the date of the transfer title again, you would need your closing documents. That's measuring the day one for an FHA loan. It's three years from short sale to be approved again. For VA, it's two years. For USDA, three years, and for Fannie Mae, four years, same for Freddie Mac. So I want to go back because there's a couple of things in here that are interesting that are really driven by the government-insured loans. There's a report that's run from the federal uh, government's uh, database, and it's called Caviers. And what it is, is an alert system to tell you whether or not there's any outstanding federal debt. Just because you foreclosed doesn't mean that you're scot-free. And what I mean by that is, is that if you owe a federal debt, say you foreclosed on an FHA loan, or you foreclosed on a VA loan, or you foreclosed on a USDA loan, they have a different time frame. It's not the date that the trustee deed was recorded. It's not the date that the closing settlement statement was finalized in the transfer title. It's the date that they finally got to your file oh, and wow. updated the record in their system. So this would be for a debt owed to the government from a FHA loan? FHA, USDA, and VA. Like a deficiency balance? Not the deficiency balance, the date of the loss. And that's what they actually measure. So they have something called um, a, an alert hit and they ask you to call okay, to the agency and they'll give you the date of the loss. And that date of that loss is the starting point. So for any listeners of this podcast, say I had a foreclosure seven years ago. Well, we would actually still wanna run through that system, especially if you're trying to use a government insured loan like FHA, VA, USDA, to find out the date that they paid that loss because that's the date that FHA would use again, VA would use again, USDA would use again in order to reinsure you a new loan for these wait periods. So that's the clock that starts the three years. Correct. So it could be way longer than the original th three years. Yes. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, um, and the odd thing is, is that these types of things are the ninja secrets we talk about that people don't know. You could have a loan officer take your application and then look at the date of the transfer and they'd say, oh, no problem, you're good, you're past the time frame. They go through the whole pre-qualifying pre process you go out and find a house, you put your deposit down or the appraisal, and then they go to Caviers and they find out, oh, they didn't pay the loss until about seven to 12 months after you actually did the transfer. And the deal's done? You're done. So, because unless you can qualify for the longer timeframes for wait, Fannie and Freddie don't have that same alert system. 
So it is different, but it's very case specific. Wow. So this is where doing your due diligence on the front end and actually getting the information to pre-qualify properly will make a world of difference because the emotional scarring that you're, you've already gone through with the loss of property is only one thing that'll bring back all these negative history and memories. And when you're trying to reestablish and put your family back into a home, you can't skip this step. Right. It will provide more stress and more heartache and the person will give up. Plus you have a lot of frustrated people involved in the transaction. And then, you know, just kind of going back, I, I always like to envision, so this whole three year thing, right? So the common theme here is three years after a foreclosure, three years after but remember, these are only for the FHA and VA. The government-insured products. And, can, and USDA. Actually, it's only two years for VA. But when you think about, well, I think about it like this, especially, um, I mean, a, a consumer that's being astute and they, you know, they went through this issue, right? And then so they had to do something with their property. They had to unload it. Uh, maybe it was a divorce settlement. They couldn't afford it anymore. What, what, when life happens, right, you have to do something. But then two to three years later, if they've reestablished their credit, they never failed another payment anywhere else. They've done well. They've, they've been responsible with their lending, responsible with their spending. They're going to have a great credit score. You can have a great credit score after three years of on-time payments. Yep. I mean, that so they could literally get back in the game and have a 720 credit score and buy another house. Yes. Or... They could not do that and they can, you know, continue to not focus on their credit or not rebuild their credit. And three years later, they can have the same credit score that they had when they had a foreclosure. So it's all about the deliberate decisions that are made um, in, the, in the planning process. So if someone knows that maybe they're going through it right now and they know and they hear this and they go, if I, you know, focus in two to three years, I can be mortgage ready again. Absolutely. With a very high score, not yes. just like a barely getting by score. Yes. And I think all of that really has to do is the, what I jokingly say, the come to Jesus moment. It's where you sit down, analyze where you're at, own it, and start. Yep. Like anything like else, that. we've used this example in the past. You cannot look out in your yard and say, there's no weeds in my yard. You can't just ignore the fact that they're there. You have to address them and you take corrective action. If you're not going to do that, then you're just kicking the can down the road and you're providing yourself no out because it doesn't build or grow unless you take corrective action and you're consistent. One of the reasons why one of the three C's is called capacity is because we wanna know if you can repay that debt. But there's a fourth C we don't talk a lot about, it's called character. It's saying, what is your character? What is your viewpoint on repaying back people that gave you the opportunity to use the money and this could be a credit card. Let's be perfectly honest. A credit card is a shorter term loan. You are getting the benefit of the money now and having to pay them back later. For that privilege, you're gonna pay them interest, right? So you get to enjoy all the benefits of everything that you want now because a creditor offered that to you. That's the extension of credit. But if you're not good with those small debts, a larger debt that comes along like a mortgage is not going to give you favorable terms or even accept you as an offering for a home loan if you cannot manage those smaller debts. So we have a responsibility in the mortgage industry to uphold the institutions that actually help us to lend money, but also provide you know, a life for our families. So we have to protect the banks, but we also have to protect the consumer. 
So earlier in the podcast, we had talked about the use of explanation, filling in the, be- the rest of the story. Underwriters take this into consideration. If you just throw a credit report out there with an application and it has a score that's high enough and you see these string of late payments, even though the score meets it, they're going to come back and ask what happened during this time frame. Is it just I forgot? That's is never it, good. Is it just that, well, you know, I, I thought I had enough money that month. I, I just didn't pay it. But when I had enough money, I paid them. The bank wants to be your favorite friend. At the beginning of that month, they want to be the first one you pay because you're the biggest debt typically on the credit report and you have the biggest exposure. So they want to be your favorite friend. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but it's true. So it's not very easy, like it would be for an auto, to grab that thing with a tow truck and take it off. Okay, um, a house is different. It's very expensive to foreclose. It's uh, not only legal fees, it's the cost of you know, eviction, it's the cost of all the things that go into it. So a bank doesn't want to own that property. So they'd rather get all that stuff sorted out on the front end so you make a good decision from credit standpoint so that you can enjoy the property, raise your family, build equity, have a lasting legacy for your future, but also pay some interest because the bank wants that, right? So any bank that tells you that they do things for free, Run, don't walk, because I don't know of any financial institutions that work for free. They have to have some profit, and that's where they get it. It's from interest and servicing expenses. So, yeah. Now, um, one last parting thing. This has actually gone longer than I thought it was going to be because we just start talking, or at least I keep talking. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, what is the best recommendation for somebody that wants to rebuild credit after a major credit catastrophe? What are the steps that you go through? There's a very simple recipe that I like to kind of convey to the consumer. And so it's it's not going to be, you know, exact, like open up this particular account. There's not a creditor that builds more credit than another creditor, right? So there's, there's not going to be something specific like that. But the goal is to shoot for 12 months from now to have three or to have three open active accounts. So two credit cards in a loan, three credit cards or one, 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 right? Just three open active accounts, no late payments for those 12 months. So obviously pay those accounts on time. Don't pay late. Uh, so three open active accounts, 12 months in a row with no lates. And if you get a late payment on month six, your 12 months start over. That's very important for the consumer to understand. And the third one is no bad debt. So if you have collections, Make sure you take these 12 months as you're rebuilding your payment history to eliminate all of your collections strategically. And some collections we may pay, some collections we may fight. That's what we do here in the credit repair world. But the plan is that when month 12 gets here that you don't have any open active collections, regardless if your lender said that medical collections don't matter, they do matter. And so the goal is three open active trade lines, no late payments in 12 months and no bad debt. That would be the goal. Absolutely. And we talked about it in another segment actually called, you know, how to get yourself mortgage credit ready, right? So I want to throw out a bonus segment here and I want to talk about people that are trying to reestablish after bankruptcy. And then also for newbies that are just out of school and they're trying to establish credit. What are some basic things that they can do that make sense? 
you know, establishing credit for the first time or reestablishing credit after a bankruptcy or any other type of credit catastrophe is really the same thing. You're, you're, you find it difficult to obtain credit anywhere. So a lot of people say, well, how can I build credit if I can't get credit to build a credit? So you're in this tough catch-22. Um, and so you always want to start with your, say, the financial institution you do business with. I always recommend credit unions. They have a very easy point of entry. And they have secured products, secured loans, and secured credit cards. And these are... So what does secured mean? These are collateral products where you're using your cash deposit in the bank to get a loan for that amount. So if you have 500 bucks in your savings, they'll lend you $480 um, while they keep your money in the savings account. And as you pay back the 480, they give you back access to your savings account. So that's the, the secured part of the loan is that you're actually giving up the collateral. And people think, well, why would I do that if I already have the money? Well, you do it to build credit. Yes. You know, you, they literally, you're not going to be able to go get a credit card at a regular retail store. So you start here. And once you do well with this, then the doors open up to get traditional credit where you're not going to need any collateral. Um, but not only that, they're also very inexpensive. So mm -hmm. you're going to pay 2 to 3% interest, which is, I mean, obviously it makes sense that you, you, it's not a very high risk to the bank. They already have the money. Um, but if you go and try to, this is my pet peeve. You go buy a car to build credit, and then you pay twenty five percent interest on the car. Yeah, that's a very expensive way yeah. to build it's credit. It's not the best recommendation. You don't want to do that. Plus, you're carrying a much larger obligation. So, and and then the car is not. You're not going to pay down the car, and then you can't afford the car, and then the payment is six hundred, six hundred dollars on a. $15,000 loan. So you're in this like vicious circle where the car gets repoed and then now you have a deficiency balance. And it's like, it's really, really bad. Um, so you don't want to do that. You want to start building with secured products, whether you're building for the first time as a fresh young adult or whether you're starting over um, and reestablishing for, you know, for after the catastrophe was yeah. over. Um, it's the same concept. It's not going to be any different. Yeah, that's a very smart thing to do. So the listeners of the podcast, Go ahead and talk to your credit union that's in the area and find out if they have a secured product. We call them secured credit cards or secured loans. You actually put the money up so they have the money already to secure what it is that you're borrowing against it. And as you pay those things back, it will develop a, a solid trade history. And what you also find is typically between three and six months after that, you're going to start getting those offers immediately for traditional credit. Now, word to the wise. Yes. Sparingly open accounts. Yes. I don't recommend any more than two to five maximum opened accounts. I with agree. you paying the balances off in full, if at all possible, every single month. Because we're not trying to get our consumers into debt. We're not asking them to pay interest that's not necessary. We're asking them to establish a payment history or a trade history that shows patterns that evaluate for a bank to be a good credit risk. So in parting, is there anything that you want the listeners to hear that would be some value to our discussion today? You know, I think that in, when, it goes, when it comes to rebuilding your credit history and the credit scores, um, they're like an adult report card, right? <laughs> so you want to take that into consideration that this the sure. credit report says the story about how you pay your bills on yeah. time. Uh, maybe the story is incorrect. Maybe the story is flawed. But the credit score doesn't take your story into account. It doesn't know why you didn't pay the bills. It just knows whether you paid them or didn't, and it's going to generate a score to, to say that. Um, so make sure you're in control of the story. Make sure you're in control of what your credit report says about you. Okay. There's something that just came up because you were talking about that scoring um, as a report card. This is kind of a, a bonus thing that I think that listeners should uh, pay attention to. 
if you yourself or you know someone else that is in this situation where they have co-signed for an obligation. That's a whole nother episode. I know, <laughs> but I just bring it up quickly. When you co-sign for an obligation or you go through a divorce, there are certain things that are very specifically written out in a divorce decree that isolates liability. Certain loan types will allow through the divorce decree and a transfer of title for those debts to be ignored or documented to be not paid by you. And in those instances, we as a lender may not be required to use those against your debt to income ratios because you went through a divorce doesn't mean that you should not have an opportunity to purchase property again. Okay. On a co-signed obligation, let's just say it a vehicle or a student loan. If you were listed as the co-obligator, not the primary, if you have 12 months of consistent payment history showing on-time payments by the actual one that borrowed the money, and you can prove that through bank statements, through canceled checks, through proof that it was paid by that other party, and you were the co-obligator, not the primary, the bank may give you a buy and not have to use that debt against you in qualifying. So, Anselmo, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate your time and your expertise. Now, if people have questions, how can they reach you? They can always visit our website at bakersfieldcreditrepair.com. Um, you can follow us on Facebook at Innovative Credit Solutions. And you can call our office at 661-369-8133. And you can also listen to our podcast, The Extra Credit Show, on iTunes and Google Play. Absolutely. That's where I'm going next because you guys have some fantastic stuff. Plus, you get to see Anselmo and the other professionals in his office on a video versus this oh, audio yeah, the podcast. podcast is on YouTube too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So anyways, thank you again, Anselm. I appreciate your time. Thanks man. And uh, we'll do more business.